Well, good morning. It's uh, good to be here this morning. Am I? Great. Uh, yeah, it's been sweet to spend some time with uh, the Belomos since yesterday afternoon and also with uh, Daniel and Sam and Lois last night. I've gotten to uh, spend some time with them and to meet a few more of you even this morning. And I got to meet a few of you when I was here briefly with my wife back in uh, the end of November. So um, before getting into the text, just a couple of uh, biographical words about myself, just so you know who I am and why I'm standing up here in front of you um, as an unfamiliar face. Uh, As Daniel said, I am a candidate for the assistant pastor position, Um, so big shoes to fill there in the place of Daniel. Um, So yeah, my wife and I currently live in Kansas City, Missouri, where I am finishing up a Master of Divinity degree at Midwestern Baptist Theological Seminary. So some of you here at Kansas City and you think of the Kansas City Chiefs who are having a little bit better of a year than the Vikings. Um, but, but I am uh, more of a Vikings fan. Because uh, I'm a native to Minnesota. So my, my stay in Kansas City has been okay, but I'm excited to move back to Minnesota. My wife, uh, she's not here today. She's back home. Um, her name is Abby. She's also from Minnesota. She grew up just about an hour south of here. So uh, she and I are excited about um, maybe moving back to Minnesota, to our roots. So she and I, uh, we have one son. His name is Edmund. He is four, he's going on four months old. So he's really tiny and young. And he is just going through the phase of learning how to laugh. So it's really, really fun. Uh, My wife and I will spend all kinds of our energy trying to get Edmund to laugh, and we'll do all kinds of ridiculous things, and we get to hear that little giggle sometimes, and it makes our day. Um, so that's probably all I'll share about myself for right now, because as Daniel mentioned before, uh, the members meeting tonight, there will be a Q&A there, so you can ask whatever questions you would like to ask me then. I'll try to do my best to answer them faithfully and um, from what I understand, there will be a vote at some point tonight. So with that, um, I know many of you have been praying. I've been praying too for the sermon this morning, but I'd like to go to the Lord in prayer together uh, once more before we dive into the, the word together. <clears throat> Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, giving us instruction in how to live as believers Lord, I feel uh, weak and frail this morning to preach your word. Your word is holy and right and true, and um, I am not. So I pray that you would strengthen me by your spirit to proclaim your word, and that your word would go out and accomplish all that you have for it 
to do. And that I pray anything that I say that is not of you would fall to the ground. And uh, what you have to say to your people here this morning would bear much fruit. Ask this in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. When was the last time that you wrote a handwritten letter and sent it to somebody? Uh, some of you maybe have never written a handwritten letter. And uh, for others, it's quite possible that there's some nostalgia that surrounds the thought of writing a letter by hand and putting it in a mailbox. And it transports you back in time to before we had cell phones and laptops and emails and text messages. For me, the last time I wrote a handwritten letter was just under two years ago. At the time, uh, my wife, who was then my fiance, was still living in Minneapolis, and I was living down in Kansas City. So we had a long-distance relationship. And we sent plenty of text messages, and we FaceTimed each other and all of those things. But we found it extremely helpful to sit down sometimes at a desk and pull out a paper and a pen and write out a letter by hand. And one of the many benefits of letter writing is that you can keep those letters and pull them out over and over to read them. The first century church in Colossians had a letter that they could pull out and read over and over again. And this letter was written by none other than the Apostle Paul. This letter was inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it came to be included in our canon of Scripture, and we now know it as the book of Colossians. So we get to look together at the opening of the book of Colossians this morning, and I am really excited to dive in to this text with you because just the little bit that I know about you people as a congregation, I think there's quite a few similarities between you here and the church in Colossae. And I think one of those similarities would be that um, from what I understand, there's quite a few here who are first-generation believers. You have been saved out of uh, different lifestyles and um, you're now walking with the Lord and figuring out what that looks like. Uh, and Paul is writing to first-generation believers in the church in Colossae. These people have been saved. Some were pagans, some were practicing Judaism, and now they are confessing believers. So Paul is going to write this letter to the Colossians, and he's going to say, now that you have confessed faith in Christ, here is how you are to live that faith out in the practical everyday workings of your lives. So I've titled my sermon this morning, Become Who You Are, because I think that is essentially the message of the book of Colossians and more particularly our passage for today. Paul is encouraging the Colossian believers and us here today by extension to become who we are in Christ, to grow into our identity as blood-bought saints. 
So as we look at uh, the text, the, the text for today divides itself pretty evenly into two sections. You have verses three through eight as one section, which can be summarized as Paul's opening remarks regarding the faith or the salvation of the Colossians. So those are his opening remarks. Then verses 9 through 14 could be summarized as his prayer for the Colossians based on uh, their confession of faith. So the main idea of this passage can be stated as this. Now that you have received salvation in Christ, walk in a manner worthy of him. Now that you have received salvation in Christ, walk in a manner worthy of him. So that's the layout of the text. And then here's how I want to spend our time together in the text this morning. So as we look at verses three through eight, I'm going to point out four truths about salvation whether that's the salvation of the Colossians or us here in this church today. These are four truths that pertain to salvation. And then in the second section of the text, 9 through 14, we'll look at four traits which flow from salvation. So four truths and then four traits. And then we'll wrap up verses 13 and 14, and I'll give a few concluding thoughts. So let's dive in uh, with uh, verses 3 through the beginning of 5. You can follow along if you still have your Bibles open with me as I read. Uh, (coughs) Excuse me. In verse 3, Paul writes, We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love that you have for all the saints because of the hope laid up for you in heaven. So Paul has just given the salutation to the people in Colossae. He has uh, explained who he is. And then now that happens in verses one and two. Now in three, he launches into his response when he heard about the Colossians' salvation. So here's the first truth that I want to point out about salvation this morning. Salvation is always a gift from God, not a work of man. Salvation is always a gift from God, not a work of man. And where do we see that in the text? Look at verse three, Paul and Timothy's response when they hear of the Colossians saving faith. Their hearts overflow with thankfulness to God the Father Because they know it is God alone who can open blinded eyes and unstop deaf ears to hear the message of the gospel. So we're going to see a little later on in verses 7 and 8 that Epaphras, a man named Epaphras, was the one to bring the gospel to the church in Colossae. But it's interesting that Paul does not thank Epaphras in this section. He thanks God because... He knows that God is the only one who ultimately brings about salvation. Epaphras must have done an incredible job evangelizing to these people. And the people were wise to believe, but Epaphras was merely 
a sower of seed and the church of Colossae, a field prepared by God for receiving the word at the right time. Remember what, uh, what Paul wrote to the church of Corinth um, over in, in 1 Corinthians. He writes, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. And then he drives that point home even further. He says, so neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. So because Paul knows that, he erupts in thanksgiving to God for the salvation of the Colossians. And you here in this church who have labored long and hard for the gospel know exactly what Paul is talking about. You know that you can desire so much for somebody to come to faith in Christ and you can share the gospel with them over and over. And that is what we should be doing. But apart from the supernatural working of God in their hearts, they're never going to believe the gospel. So when they believe the gospel, when we see people come to faith in Christ, our response should reflect Paul's response here. We should erupt in thanksgiving to God for the salvation of lost sinners when they are saved. So that is the first truth, that salvation is always a gift of God, not a work of man. The second truth is that salvation is evidenced by faith, hope, and love. Uh, So look at verse 4 with me. So there Paul mentions both a vertical component and a a, a horizontal component of the Colossians' faith. He mentions their, their faith in Christ Jesus, which is the vertical component, and then he mentions their love for the saints, the horizontal component. And we know that true saving faith in Christ is never compartmentalized to the spiritual realm. It must affect every square inch of our lives, especially our relationships to those around us. So Paul notes that they have this love for the saints. And as I was studying this, I was reminded of of Jesus' words in John chapter 13. He's talking to his disciples. He's instructing them before he goes to his crucifixion. And Jesus says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. By this, Jesus says, by this love, all people will know that you are my disciples. If you have love for one another. So Paul sees that type of love in the believers in Colossae. And he says, this is a confirmation of your faith in Christ, your love for for the brethren. And just as this faith and love are tethered together, he points in verse five in the beginning to the third virtue, which is hope. He says that the faith they have in Christ Jesus and the hope or the love that they have for their brethren is coming from this hope that they have in the life to come. He says, because of the hope you have in the life to come and stored up for you in heaven. So as I was studying this, even I was forced to ask myself, how often does my hope in the life to come affect the way that I am living right here today 
And I want to even put that question to you guys just to, to ponder as we go through this text. How often does your hope in eternity to come affect the way that you live your life right here this afternoon or tomorrow morning? I think as we see in the lives of the Colossians here, this should have a huge impact on the way we live each day. So let's uh, pick back up with uh, the second half of verse 5 now, and then we'll read through verse 8. Paul writes, Of this you have heard before in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you, as indeed in the whole world it is bearing fruit and increasing, as it also does among you, since the day you heard it and understood the grace of God and truth just as you learned it from Epaphras, our beloved fellow servant. He is a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf and has made known to us your love in the Spirit. So here Paul zooms out just a little bit. He's been focusing on the salvation of the Colossians. Now he takes a step back and he's like, look how the gospel is spreading across the whole world. And then in verses 7 and 8, he gives another sort of side note about this man, Epaphras. And one of the interesting things about Epaphras, we don't know that much about him from Scripture, but over in chapter 4 of Colossians in verse 13, we learn that Epaphras was a native of Colossae. So what is commonly understood is that Epaphras probably at some point in his life was in Ephesus when Paul was in Ephesus. And you guys, since you've been going through the book of Acts, know that Paul spent some time in Ephesus. And Epaphras heard the gospel there and believed. And then he went back to his hometown with the gospel message and he saw so much fruit. And then we can conclude that he at some point returned to Paul, who was probably in Rome when he wrote this letter and shared about the the great fruit that he had witnessed in uh, Colossae. So that's what Paul is doing here. He's, He's still setting the stage to launch into his prayer. But now the third truth that I want to point out about salvation is, is this salvation reflects and completes the creation mandate. Now that sounds a bit abstract. And I need to give a bit of an explanation for what I mean by that. Uh, So verse 6, Paul talks about the gospel bearing fruit and increasing. He uses those specific terms, bearing fruit and increasing. He'll use very similar language over in verse 10. Now, if we were to turn back to Genesis 1, and you don't have to go there, uh, but Genesis 1, 28, right in the heart of the creation story, God is speaking to Adam and Eve, and he says, go be fruitful and multiply. Or we could say, bear fruit and increase. And then uh, that language is repeated in Genesis 9, verse 1. Again, you don't have to turn there, but uh, quick context. That's after the flood. God is speaking to Noah, and he says, you are to go up forth, bear fruit, and increase. And then we see it again in Genesis 17, When God is promising descendants to Abraham, he says, I will make your descendants fruitful and I will multiply you. So there is this theme that starts out in Genesis and is carried through the Old Testament about being fruitful and multiplying. 
But here's the catch. If, if you know anything about Israel's history, and if you know anything really about world history, you know that the human population, we have been fruitful and multiplied, but along with the multiplication of people has come the multiplication of sin and sorrow and suffering. So after the fall, the creation mandate is what the creation mandate is what's typically referred to in, in Genesis 1:28, the being fruitful and multiplying. That whole thing got off to a, a rough start after the fall. So Jesus comes, he enters the stage of world history. He begins to right all the wrongs that the human race has committed. And in his life, he fulfills all righteousness. That's Matthew chapter three tells us that. In his resurrection from the dead, he is the first fruits of a new creation. So Jesus initiates a new creation in place of the old, or we could say to fulfill the old. And then Jesus opens the door wide for people to believe in him, follow him in that new creation, and to bear fruit and to increase in the new creation. So Paul looks at that, very familiar, of course, with the creation story in the language of the Old Testament. And he sees that. He says, the gospel is the fulfillment and the culmination of the creation mandate. There's a whole spiritual element that's added to it. And now as people are sharing the gospel all across the world, they are fulfilling the true mandate that has has, uh, been there all along, but it's Shed, it, there's light that has been shed upon it in the gospel. So, and then the fact that we are here today worshiping Christ on a piece of land that Paul uh, very likely had no idea existed when he wrote this letter <laughs> is evidence to the fact that the gospel has continued to bear fruit and to increase in the 2,000 years or whatever that have uh, transpired. And it's continuing even today in Cameroon, all, all across the world. So, so that is the third point that uh, the salvation reflects and completes the creation mandate. The fourth is that salvation is brought about by all three persons of the Trinity. So if you look at the very end of verse 8 there, uh, Epaphras makes known to Paul the Colossians love, and then we have this phrase, in the spirit. So the love that the Colossians have for one another is enabled, it is made possible through the Holy Spirit. So we look back in verse three, we saw that Paul and Timothy were giving thanks to the Father. It's made very explicit, it's the Father. In verse four, he mentions their faith, in Christ Jesus. And now we see the Spirit enabling the love in verse 8. So we have all three persons of the Trinity in these six verses working together for the salvation of the Colossian people. So there's so much more that we could say about this. You know, the Trinity is one of those concepts that's so hard for us to understand in our finite minds. It is very hard for us to understand how some, how a being could be one in essence and three in persons. And we're not going to totally figure it out, but it is important for us to understand, even here today, that our salvation is a result of all three persons of the Trinity working together 
for our redemption. It's a bit like three musical notes blending into a chord of harmony. And the persons of the Trinity work together to save souls, to bring them into the kingdom of God. So those are the four truths about salvation. And um, in this first section, as I said, Paul is laying the groundwork for the prayer that he's going to pray for the Colossians in the second section. So he's, he's, he's laid the groundwork, and now he's going to pray, basically, that they become who they are in Christ. So uh, look back at uh, verse 9 with me. We're going to look at 9 through 12 now. So Paul writes, And so, in verse 9, From the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. So as Paul prays this prayer, he knows that the Colossian believers are being bombarded with heretical teaching. And I'm not going to get into that today. We would see that if we went over to chapter 2. But my point in bringing that up is simply that knowing that the, the church is being bombarded with heretical teaching, Paul starts out by praying for their growth in knowledge of the Lord. So you've probably heard the illustration before that the best way to recognize counterfeit money is by studying real money because there's so many types of counterfeit money you can never study them all but if you just study the real thing you recognize the counterfeit the same is true for the gospel if you study the gospel study the truth and know it so well you are going to recognize any heretical teaching that comes in and tries to infiltrate so that's that's partly why Paul is praying for this growth in knowledge But then he goes on. Look at verse 10 again. And Paul prays that the knowledge with which these people grow would help them to walk, he says, so as to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him. And Paul knows that knowledge is only worth as much as the actions it produces. Because we, you all know here that people can have tons of knowledge, but if they don't live it out, it's not really worth a whole lot. So Paul prays that they would live this knowledge out. Unless we are still wondering how exactly it looks to live that out, how to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, Paul's going to help us by giving us four clear traits of a life worthy of the Lord, or as I said at the beginning, four clear traits of salvation. (coughs) So we see the first of these four traits in the second half of verse 10, where Paul says, uh, we are to bear fruit in every good work. So what does it look like for us to bear fruit in every good work? I think that's Galatians 5, and 23 might be a helpful summary here. You guys are probably all familiar with, or most of you familiar with this verse. This is Paul talking about the fruits of the Spirit. He writes, 
Uh, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. So, for the Colossians, when, when Paul is calling them to bear fruit in every good work, there seems to be a drive here towards their attitudes and their heart postures. How are they thinking? Uh, what are, uh, how are they uh, working through these good works in their minds? And for us here today, I think one relevant point of application would be to consider our relationships with those close by us. So, and if we substitute into those relationships the fruits of the Spirit. So husbands, do you treat your wives with gentleness? Parents, do you treat your children with patience? Students, do you treat your teachers with kindness and your homework with faithfulness? Children, do you obey your parents with love? Employees, do you exercise self-control when your boss or your coworkers continually wear you down? As believers, the fruits of the Spirit should be continually increasing in our lives and in the way we respond to those people around us. But I have a word of encouragement and reminder here. As we think about how we bear those fruits of the Spirit, remember that these are not fruits that you are trying to conjure up in your own strength. So as we think about how to bear these fruits, remember Jesus' words, again from the Gospel of John, this time chapter 14. Jesus says, abide in me. Abide in me and I in you. And then he says this beautiful statement, as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. So if we seek to bear these fruits of the Spirit, don't try harder on your own to bear them. Abide in Christ and allow him to bear fruit through you. Now more quickly, the second trait of uh, salvation, which marks a life pleasing to the Lord, is that we are to increase in the knowledge of God. You see that right there at the end of verse 10. Uh, So those of you who are dating or are married or maybe engaged, know that when you fall in love with someone, you want to know all about that person. You want to find out what types of things they enjoy. You want to know what kind of food they like, all of these things. And as we increase in our knowledge and love of God, we should rightfully have that desire for God, not romantically, but to to desire to know God better, to learn more of his ways. And it's just, you know, to do that, we have his word with us. We can read his word. We can study it. We can pray to him. And just a reminder, Paul says just a little further on in the book of Colossians, that in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So we as a church, you as a church, would do well to study the scripture, to pray, to seek God, to grow in that knowledge. And uh, a little plug here for Daniel and Bobby's class, the spiritual disciplines 
are an excellent way to grow in the knowledge of God. So start going to that class, learn more about the spiritual disciplines and uh, increase your knowledge of God. Now, the third trait of salvation, so we just have two left. The third trait of salvation is uh, a bit different than the first two. This one, I love this one. This is that we are strengthened by God for all patience and endurance. You see that right at the the beginning of verse 11. Um, And then if you have an ESV translation, you'll see a phrase that says you are to be, uh, the strength is to come with joy. Now, as I studied commentaries, I found out it's debatable whether the with joy phrase comes with this or if it comes in verse 12 with the thankfulness section. And after studying the commentaries, I think it probably comes with verse 12. Anyway, Paul is saying here in verse 11, he's piling up this powerful language. He prays that they would be strengthened with all power according to God's glorious might. And you might expect after all of this heaping up of power language that Paul's going to pray that uh, this strength, the end result of it is like standing before kings, like rising to the top of your league and everything you do, maybe fighting with lions and, and winning. But no, so Paul prays this for a much more uh, maybe commonplace, we could say, need. And, and the need is for patience and endurance in the daily Christian life. And we all need patience and endurance to get through this life. I don't have the uh, privilege of knowing many of your stories here yet, but I can guess just because of the way the life goes that some of you here, even this morning, are probably reeling in pain and disappointment and your lives probably haven't worked out the way that you pictured them working out. You're sitting here thinking, how did I ever get here? I didn't picture myself here 10 years ago. Um, But I have good news for you, that this strength that Paul is talking about in verse 11 is a strength that's provided by God. He is the one who is strengthening you for endurance and patience as you struggle to make it through another day. And, and uh, the Greek word here is in the present tense. All that means is that this is an ongoing strength. It's not a once and done, like when you're saved, God gives you a certain measure of strength and then says, okay, go use that strength for the rest of your life. No, God is strengthening you day by day. So if you feel like you are just in the middle of that dark night of the soul. Cry out to God today. He is there to strengthen you, to give you endurance to make it through the day and to give you patience until we get to see that hope that is stored up for us in heaven. So the fourth and final trait, which comes from salvation, is uh, giving thanks to the Father for our salvation. You'll see that right there in verse 12. Paul says, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Um, And the with joy phrase probably goes with this. So we are to joyfully give thanks for our salvation. And again, it's not like we 
thank the Lord for our salvation when he saves us, and then we go on with our lives. No, this is an active thankfulness that we are continually marveling that the Lord would save sinners like us and then thanking him for that. And isn't it interesting here that Paul, he opens out our section for today in verse three by thanking the Lord for the salvation of the Colossians. Paul is leading here by example. And then he swings around to verse 12 and he says, now you be thankful for your salvation. Have thankful hearts. And we stop for a minute to think about this salvation that we're thankful for. Paul mentions here uh, the inheritance. So the inheritance we are getting, it's better than silver and gold. It's better than the land of Canaan that the Israelites were going to inherit. It's better even than the Garden of Eden that Adam and Eve were going to inherit. These are blessings that we're going to inherit right alongside of Christ. We, we get to inherit heaven itself. And not only heaven itself, we get to inherit unending, unrestricted access to the presence of the triune God for all of eternity. And Christ inherits those blessings rightfully because of his life, death, and resurrection. But we inherit those blessings through sheer grace. And you know, as well as I do, there's not one person under this roof that deserves a little pinch of this blessing. But through God's grace, we are grafted in to the family of God. Friends, the gospel is beautiful. So Paul responds in that way in verse 13 and 14. He says, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. And it's interesting here to to see that Paul uses uh, the contrast of light and darkness. He he talks in verse 12 about uh, transferred into the, the saints in light. And then here he talks about being transferred out of the domain of darkness. And if, if we think again about the creation sort of imagery, the same God who created light and separated the light from the darkness has shined his light in our hearts and called us out of that darkness and brought us into the light of the kingdom of his beloved son. So how are you to live differently today in light of hearing this sermon? If uh, there are any here today who have not placed their trust in Christ yet, let me just take a moment to speak directly to you. The beautiful salvation that Paul has recounted here in Colossians 1 is not yet yours. You have not yet been rescued out of the domain of darkness. The Bible says in Romans 3 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And in Romans 6, the Bible says that the wages of that sin is death. And this isn't just a death the way we think of it, like we die at the end of our lives because everybody will die. Uh, this is spiritual death. This is eternal death separation from God, eternal torment in hell. But God has made a way for us to escape that kind of 
condemnation. And the Apostle John puts it in this way. He says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. So friend, if you believe in Christ, and if you repent of your sins today, Jesus will forgive those sins, and he will credit his righteous works to your spiritual account so that when God the Father looks at you, he no longer sees the filthiness of your sin, but he will see Christ's righteousness. And the Spirit will come if you believe in Christ. The Holy Spirit will come and indwell your heart and enable you to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Let me plead with you, if that is you, to turn to Christ today because tomorrow might be too late. We never know what could happen and we are not guaranteed any more than the minute we are living in. So if you have any questions about what that looks like, you can talk to anybody here. You can talk to me afterwards about what it means to follow Christ and how to, how to follow him. Uh, secondly, to all of us who are believers, what do we do in light of this sermon? My prayer is that these four traits of salvation that we've talked about, that I've discussed today, would be increasingly stamped upon our lives. But as you seek to live out these traits more and more, Remember that God has given you the Holy Spirit to help carry out these traits. We are not left on our own, uh, on our own striving to live these out. And I also want to remind you, too, that these traits do nothing in the way of earning you favor with God. You have favor with God through Christ if you are saved. These traits are merely an outward expression of the faith that you have in Christ. And then finally, I want to encourage you to use Colossians, specifically verses 9 through 12 of chapter 1, to inform and enhance your own prayer lives. A lot of times we struggle with knowing how to pray for other people or even for our own hearts. And when we struggle, there is no better way we can pray than to pray Scripture. So let Paul take you by the hand and instruct you in how to pray for your own heart and the hearts of others as he prays for the Colossians. And as you ponder these words, these beautiful words in 9 through 12, may the Holy Spirit help each one of you become who you are. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you so much for giving us salvation in Christ. We are in awe that you would save sinners such as us. And we praise you for that. Thank you that we get to inherit the blessings of eternity along with Christ. Lord, I pray that if there are any here today who do not yet know you, that they would turn to you, cry out for salvation, and that you would, in your glorious might, save them. In Jesus' name, amen.